0: Good evening from Charlotte. I'm James Barrington and welcome to another edition of the Carolina Weather Group. It's been 31 years since Hurricane Hugo came ashore in the Carolinas with hurricane impacts along the coast and as far inland as here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Last year, for the 30th anniversary of the storm's landfall, the Carolina Weather Group produced a special dedicated to a three-decade look back at that storm. And Tonight, we want to revisit that as we mark this 31st anniversary of Hurricane Hugo.
1: We knew it was coming, but we just had no idea that it would be like this.
2: It was a rough night, but we didn't know how bad the devastation was until we went out the next morning and the trees were all down. We stayed outside in the hurricane for two and a half to three hours on that sofa.
3: This used to be a road here at Folly Beach, and over there was the Atlantic House restaurant which was a landmark for tourists, visitors, and the residents. About 80% of the homes along Folly Beach have been destroyed.
4: Parts of the popular resort look more like East Beirut rather than the Sun Fun City. Saturday morning, armed National Guardsmen patrolled streets and beaches, discouraging sightseers and potential looters.
2: And on the shelves, there are boxes of oatmeal and spices and hanging on the wall. There's some cups. It's real weird.
5: Will you rebuild?
2: at this point i don't know one of the most dramatic
3: sights was this sailboat tossed into the middle of the road near charleston marina
2: it was like a scene from a war movie and uh, the losses had just been far above what we anticipated even after the storm i mean uh, driving around looking at it we knew it was bad but we had no idea it was as bad as it is
0: good evening and welcome to a special edition of the carolina weather group i'm james briarton in charlotte this episode is going to be entirely dedicated to talking about the 30th anniversary of hurricane hugo our panel will be along in just a moment to talk about the storm's important historical impacts here in both north carolina and south carolina we're also going to hear from folks who not only covered the storm for broadcast media but were in charge of keeping you and the public safe we have some sound from the former mayor of Charleston, who had a very vital role during that very historic storm. And most importantly, we're going to be hearing from you. Thank you to everyone who has sent in your listener stories, and as you watch this broadcast tonight, and have not yet done that so already, we encourage you to comment on our live feed, or you can always find a way to send us a voice message on our podcast feed. Just check us out on your favorite podcast app and look for that link to send us a voice message now without further ado let's bring in panelist tim pounds he's in north augusta tonight and he starts us off with a historical look back on hurricane hugo tim good evening
6: good evening james well 30 years ago around midnight on september 22nd hurricane hugo made landfall just north of charleston south carolina at sullivan's island as a Category 4 storm with estimated maximum winds near 140 mph an and a minimum central pressure of 934 millibars, Hugo produced tremendous wind and storm surge damage along the coast and hurricane-forced wind gusts several hundred miles inland into western North Carolina. The highest storm tide heights ever recorded along the eastern United States coast occurred around Bulls Bay at Cape Romaine. And at the time, Hugo was the nation's costliest hurricane on record in terms of damages, with around $7 billion. Unfortunately, 49 deaths were directly attributed to the storm, 26 of which occurred in the U.S., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And now let's jump over to Scotty Powell, who's going to give us a look back at some of the regional impacts of Hurricane Hugo.
7: Thanks, Tim. Good evening to everyone. Uh, Hugo, uh, pretty much a benchmark storm for a lot of folks in north and south carolina and uh, we're going to go over some of the impacts we all know that hugo first affected the charleston area and as we look at this map right now you can see some of the areas affected by hurricane hugo we're looking uh, at a storm surge anywhere between 20 feet uh, ranging in bulls bay folly beach 10 to 12 feet of storm surge myrtle beach all the way up to the grand strand coast 13 feet of storm surge, and even the Charleston area saw eight to nine feet of storm surge. Let's also cover some of those wind gusts, and we can look at some pictures as well that the National Weather Service has provided for us. Folly Beach, 107 mile per hour wind gust. Charleston, South Carolina, in the downtown area, 108 mile per hour wind gust. Sampet River, close to where landfall was made, 121 mile per hour wind gusts registered there. Myrtle Beach, registering 76 miles per hour and even up into the Columbia area we saw 70 mile per hour wind gusts as we look along the coast you can see some of the areas affected uh near the uh, McClellansville area we saw uh, some heavy damage along the coast with some uh, fishing boats and shrimp boats uh pushed well inland from the storm surge we look into the Charleston area uh, locations near Bowles Bay. Again, a lot of uh, wind damage, a lot of trees down, and also a lot of storm surge damage as well. As we look closer to the Charleston Harbor near Sullivan's Island, we see pictures of houses destroyed from the wind and the water. Uh, just a very uh, dangerous situation uh, on this day back in 1989 in the Charleston area. Uh, we also see a uh, Portions
8: of of a bridge that uh, was knocked out. Yeah, Scotty, that bridge—that's the iconic Ben Sawyer Bridge connecting Mount Pleasant to Sullivan's Island. Uh, it was uh, pretty badly damaged in Hugo. There was uh, half of it was in the intercoastal waterway. Uh, but what's incredible is that they got it back up and running just the next month later. As we
7: move up the coast into Georgetown and Ori County, we also saw some damage there. We saw uh, damage to homes. Uh, near Polly's Island. As we go up into uh, the Merles Inlet Garden City area, we see damage uh, from power lines and power poles pushed down from not only the storm surge, but also uh, those gusty winds in the area. And uh, even Myrtle Beach experiencing a lot of uh, storm surge damage as well. So uh, we can see uh, some manufactured and mobile homes in the Surfside Beach area, just south of the Myrtle Beach area with uh, the sand pushed up rows and rows into the, uh, the mobile home park there from the storm surge. So lots of damage along the coast. But the unique thing about Hurricane Hugo and the scary thing was as it remained her- a hurricane through central South Carolina. We look near the Sumter area. We see a picture of Brown's Chapel near the First Baptist Church in Sumter, South Carolina, totally just des- destroyed by Hurricane Hugo. We saw wind gusts, like we talked about earlier, of 70 miles per hour in the Columbia area. We saw uh, Hugo make a uh, damage uh, swath across South Carolina. It caused approximately $6 billion of damage and accounted for 13 deaths in South Carolina. And Hugo wasn't finished. As it moved into the Charlotte area, we see pictures of a tower from WSOC in Charlotte, Channel 9, uh, the uh, receiver tower, blown over from the high winds. In fact, we saw winds gusting up to 99 miles per hour in the Charlotte area. We saw a wind gust of 81 miles per hour in Hickory, and not even – not even in the central part of the the Carolinas, even in the mountains, Asheville saw wind gusts of 37 miles per hour. And this was a large storm. We even seen wind gusts uh, 54 miles per hour in Greensboro and 54 miles per hour in the Wilmington, North Carolina area. So uh, the storm continued to move through the Piedmont into the mountains of North Carolina. They even created damage along uh, Virginia up into the Ohio Valley and eventually in Canada. We'll be right back as we continue to talk about the 30th anniversary of Hurricane Hugo here on the Carolina Weather Group.
8: This is the Carolina Weather Group's 30th anniversary Hurricane Hugo special. Hurricane Hugo, two words that evoke a lot of emotion from Charlestonians who have uh, been here, who have uh, who lived it. It's the storm which they make their evacuation decisions. It's the storm by which uh, everything is measured here. Uh, when it comes to tropical systems. It's a storm by which we hope we never experience again, but statistically speaking, we probably will. Um, And so, you know, so Hugo is a cautionary tale. It is a clear reminder of what nature could do. Hugo is the benchmark storm. It is the one by which all other storms are measured. Wind gusts, 110, 120, sustained winds. 110, 120, max sustained 135 at landfall, Category 4 on the Saffir-Simpson scale. Came ashore just northeast of Charleston. Came ashore; uh, the center's uh, worst impacts uh, were felt in Sullivan's Island, Isle of Palms. Numerous homes rendered uninhabitable; couldn't live there. Uh, many, many boats pushed ashore. Those photos of the those photos of the boats being pushed ashore, pushed ashore is still is one of the most lasting memories for me. Um, the Ben Sawyer Bridge, like we talked about earlier, you know, completely taken off, you know, completely just, just twisted out of whack, uh, taking a month to repair, which is remarkable. Uh, It only took that long, numerous trees down, so many trees down in the Francis Marion forest that there are no longer any logging operations there. It shut, it shut that down. There weren't enough trees. And then from there, the effects were felt even further inland. Monks Corner, Goose Creek. My parents had uh, had a house there. Still in that same house. Um, and and you know, trees going down all over the place. Uh, it, it was a very very landscape changing storm. It introduced uh, many Charlestonians to the smell of pine, to the smell of uh, pine, and the sound of chainsaws. Something that we reprised in 2014 with the ice storm. That ice storm that we had in 2014. Uh, Evoked a lot of memories of Hugo because of all of the pine and all of the downed trees. Uh, Just really fascinating stuff. Storm tide, storm surge, 20 feet in Bulls Bay, 12.77 feet in Charleston Harbor, still the number one tide on record there. And records go back uh, uh, almost a hundred years there. We still haven't hit that. Um, Fortunately, there wasn't as much rainfall with it here as there could have been. All the rainfall was actually on the west side of the storm. You take a look at some of the uh, uh, some of the estimates there, and you see that Edisto got 10 inches of rain, but that was on the west side of the storm. And the storm was moving fast. So imagine if it had been one of these storms that had brought this kind of tide and had brought all that and it stalled out. It is amazing to think that Hurricane Hugo could have been worse, but yet it could have. So with all that said... It is the storm by which everybody measures. It is the storm by which people make those evacuation decisions. And we've got some sound here from former mayor, Joe Riley, who was the mayor until not long ago. Um, He was here in 89 and he was here right up through um, 2013, 2014. And uh, he talks about uh, the importance of getting out of town uh, when one of these monster storms is approaching.
2: The most important thing for a mayor to do is evacuate his citizens because hurricanes kill through storm surge more than anything else. Getting your citizens to evacuate is difficult because people don't want to leave. And you have to thread the needle between panic and fear. I called my senior staff, department heads, staff members together, and, um, and told them that we should see this as an opportunity. And, uh, and they looked at me a little odd, <laughs> and I said, it's an opportunity because if this hurricane comes our way, then we will have the chance to serve our citizens when they need us more than they've ever needed us before.
8: Now, in this next clip, you are going to hear from Rob Fowler. He was here on the Carolina Weather Group five years ago uh, talking the 25th anniversary of Hugo uh, and, and talking about some of the aftermath that he saw, the initial reaction he had to the aftermath. Take a listen.
9: Because when you walked outside that next morning, and you saw the tree damage, you saw the light poles down, you saw those big old interstate signs that tell you the mileage from one point to the other, or take this exit cut in half or fold it in half like you would take a piece of bread and fold it in half. Uh, that kind of gave you an indication of the power of the storm. So I think all of us thought we didn't have anything when we went back home.
8: Now, on this next clip, we're going to hear from Rob Fowler about his personal experiences and some of the stories he heard that came out of Hugo.
9: I'll never forget probably the. The one story I tell quite often that usually gets a chuckle, you know, um, we lived in a neighborhood in Mount Pleasant and we were lucky enough uh, to have a neighbor who runs a seafood place in Mount Pleasant and he knew uh, that his place wasn't probably going to be there, so we took all of his inventory and he put it in one of those refrigerated trucks and parked it across the street in our neighborhood. So after the hurricane came and went, um, he opened the back of the truck and we had cookouts. We were eating lobster and steak and shrimp and and we were really chowing down. Well, as I mentioned earlier, my wife evacuated pregnant with her, and so she wasn't there. But when she came back at one of these cookouts, one of our neighbors who stayed in the house across the street, they came up to us and said, you know, Rob, we've decided that we we made a decision about evacuation. I said, what's that? They said, the next time we see the weatherman's wife leave town, we're out of here. So. <laughs> um,
10: <laughs>
0: Jared, thanks so much. We're going to go a little bit further north now to Myrtle Beach. Previously on this program, we had meteorologist Tom Sorrels, who at the time was an up-and-coming meteorologist in Myrtle Beach. He now works in Orlando, Florida, a place where they are still not strangers to the hurricane. But in this experience, Tom was about to cover his very first hurricane. He was very excited, but he told us about the moment he realized he had a lot on his plate.
11: We knew by Monday that maybe, we thought by Tuesday, we might luck out. And then by late Tuesday, it was obvious, uh, the modeling that we had the capacity for at the time, all the reports out of Miami from the Hurricane Center were not good. And so I was still, 26-year-old me, going, come to Papa. This is going to be fun. This is going to be great. And then uh, Thursday, at about the 5 o'clock update, satellite technology where we could actually talk from a station like WPDE to Miami was still kind of new and cool for us. And so these, back in those days, the reports you'd see out of Miami were normally carried on the evening news, and then that gradually broke down from the evening right. news to local news. And so the local news stations started doing that, and I've got copies or, or tape of me talking to Bob Shields, uh, Sheets yeah. Bob Sheets, yeah. about, hey, Dr. Sheets, this thing has grown up even bigger. How big is it now? And he turns and <laughs> looks straight in the camera at me and goes, well, it's a Category 4 now, Tom, and you and Myrtle Beach are dead direct in its sight you're going to be the bullseye, and I'm like, oh, and that's the first time it was ever real to me. Dr. Sheets looked at me and said, buddy, it's you, and of course, it did not make that turn, Right. and ground zero for the the thing was the Francis Marion National Forest, Charleston, but we still got walloped with like a 14-foot storm surge, canopy damage, all kinds of events.
7: I remember from that show, sometimes really stuck with me from the impacts of Hugo and Myrtle Beach was just the storm surge there. almost telling us uh, that it took days for Highway 17 and uh, Ocean Boulevard to be bulldozed. They bulldozed all this sand from the storm surge off of the road. So, Uh, Although the wind and the rain was a a big story, the storm surge was the major issue in South Carolina or in the Grand Strand in the Myrtle Beach area. But uh, just uh, the days and days it took to get all the sand off the road was kind of uh, has always stuck in my mind the major impacts in the Grand Strand area.
0: Scotty, that's absolutely right. Hurricane Hugo had a huge impact in the Myrtle Beach area. In some ways, it could have been Even worse there, believe it or not, if Hurricane Hugo had sucked to some of its earlier forecast where the landfall was much closer to the Myrtle Beach area. Coming up later in this program, our own Evan Fisher is going to talk about another what-if scenario. What would have happened if Hurricane Hugo had come ashore south of Charleston instead of north of Charleston? Certainly, it was a very dangerous situation that played out in Charleston, but it could have been much worse if the storm was to the south. That would have put Charleston in an even more dangerous position with regards to the hurricane. We'll talk about that coming up. Continuing on now with our look back at what actually did play out, we'll move our focus a little bit further inland. Another clip from Tom Sorrells talks about what happened in Sumter, South Carolina, where the storm was continuing to wreak havoc, knocking out power, leaving people in the dark, and leaving them without information about what was happening around them when all of the televisions went dark. Tom talks about how folks turned to the good old reliable radio for information in this very desperate situation. Take a listen.
11: I'm One of the heroes of that storm, I mean, we're all working but one of the heroes of that storm was a radio guy in Sumter, South Carolina, who was the voice of the storm for those folks in Sumter getting pummeled. And I can't remember his name, but I did lots of, um, you know, you always do the recovery things. You go to a big horse show, and and we honor Tom Sorrells and this guy from the radio station (laughs) for being on all night with us. And he was a huge hero because as power went down, everyone grabbed radio, Battery-operated radios, and they couldn't see us on television anymore, but they could still hear him.
9: And I'll tell you, I don't know how was it with uh, you guys, Tom, but one miracle happened, and the phone lines never went down. Mm. We were able to communicate via phone with whomever we needed to. But uh, there was a radio station for us in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm not sure what station, but they were one of those clear channel stations broadcasting. So we actually had people in Charleston calling that radio station, saying, "Hey, I'm looking for Tom, and I'm looking for Jane, and I'm you know." So it was for us therapeutic wow. in the sense that people could find out if their loved ones were okay, and, and that the fact that the phone up and a radio station in Jacksonville, Florida, kind of akin to what happened in Sumter. That was our way, our outlet of getting information in and out to people in Charleston.
0: And from the Sumter area now we head a little bit further north to talk about the impacts the storm still had as it came into Western North Carolina, including in the Queen City. Scotty Powell picks it up from here, Scotty.
7: Not only did it bring along the rain, but it also brought gusty winds. In fact, there was a lot of wind in lots of places that don't experience hurricane winds. We caught up with Eric Thomas earlier this summer at the National Hurricane Awareness Tour. Eric reflects back on what he remembers as Hugo was bearing down on Charlotte, North
4: Carolina. You know, I got here in the fall of 88, and in November of 88, they had that F4 tornado up in Raleigh. And next thing I know, I'd barely got my feet on the ground, and I'm in a helicopter flying over this tornado damage and thinking, oh my goodness, what have I got myself into? <laughs> so I got through that, and then 89 rolled around, and here comes Hurricane Hugo. And I have to tell you, we were woefully under-equipped. Uh, back then, in the weather department, we, we actually, when I got here, I was the first meteorologist to ever work at WBTV. So, at the same time that I got there, they were feverishly trying to bring in the weather equipment that would allow me to really do my job as a meteorologist. So, at that point, we really didn't have any real a- analytical equipment. So, I was a slave to just this little sheet of uh, one page of, of weather surface weather maps from AccuWeather to kind of like look at this and go, oh gee, there's a cold front, <laughs> there's a warm front, and that looks like a hurricane. You know, and so, I mean, we had the little 300 baud weather ticker back then, you know, tick, 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 you know, bringing up the data. And so, uh, but to, to their credit, you know, AccuWeather, as this storm was getting closer, you know was was letting us know Look, this thing has got a very fast forward speed it was like coming into the coast at around 35 40 miles per hour and the problem with that is you got a category four hurricane down there and this thing is going to be up in charlotte you know within four five six hours that that's not much time for a cat four to spin down is it Right. and so we were warning people look this is going to be different than most of the coastal hurricanes in the past And we were feverishly trying to tell people to tie everything down, get ready, this is not going to be good. Even with that, though, we had no idea uh, that it was going to create the amount of destruction that it did. Uh, I remember when the first light came up, and I was there all night, and we looked out the windows out of the radio station that we have there, and my jaw just dropped because it seemed like there must have been 95, 100 pine trees that were just mowed down. It looked like Godzilla had come through. (laughs) I mean, it was unbelievable. And, uh, And then, of course, the rest is history. You know, we've always heard about how people were without power for three weeks. You hear the sounds of chainsaws buzzing in the air, you know, week after week. I remember when I was trying to get home that day, and it took me a long time to get home because of all the blocked roads, that, you know, the very first intersection that I came to, right at the bottom of our hill, uh, there was a National Guardsman there with his M16 machine gun, you know, in the intersection. And, and that's when it really hit me. I thought, you know, it feels like I am in a war zone yeah. here. Uh, and that's what it was, you know, with just the complete destruction of the infrastructure around Charlotte uh, and, and all the trees down the road's blocked, stores closed, nobody could get gas. You know, and it was just really um, intimidating, you know, to be, you know, to be a part of that as a citizen. Um, and and then after that of course you know all the uh, the cleanup and the recovery began very
7: unique story from Eric Thomas we also caught up with Larry Sprinkle at the Charlotte Douglas International Airport for the hurricane awareness story and Larry tells us about what it was like covering Hugo while on the air broadcasting to the many folks watching as Hugo bared down on western North Carolina
5: and obviously you know this is going in my 35th year I've seen and covered quite a few, but that one specifically impacted me directly because um, the morning that that actually hit Charlotte, um, at the station we had a limited staff. We had two of us in the weather department, Steve Raleigh and myself, and just a nucleus of people to run the station. So there were oh maybe 12 people at the most in the station. So they decided to uh, lock a camera down in the studio so the meteorologist is on, on air with a lockdown camera. Steve was taking a break, and I think it was maybe 4.20ish in the morning. Uh, we'd been outside, inside, we knew that the, the, the front of the storm was hitting. And I'll never forget, the camera was, was like here in front of me. And off to my left is the main part of the studio. And so I'm talking, and I'm saying, uh, well we've, had, uh, we've had reports of wind gusts over 90 miles an hour. Near Shaw Air Force Base, winds over 70 miles an hour in Charlotte. And about that time, I could hear something off to my left, kind of a creaking sound. And then all of a sudden, I looked over, and about 500 pounds of ceiling came in right next to me. So the camera didn't pick it up, but but I'm like this. The camera is here, but my eyes are like this. And part of the ceiling just caved in in front of me. We've received gusts up to... um... Uh, about 100 miles an hour Shaw Air Force Base. I've been distracted because uh, as a lot of people are experiencing, part of our ceiling just collapsed in here. This is a very serious system. Back to you guys in the newsroom. So I went back to our news anchor uh, uh, at the time, Rick Jackson. And so Rick goes, uh, his camera's back on him. He goes, Larry, let me ask you a question. Larry? Larry was on his hands and knees crawling. <laughs> Took me two seconds to get out of the studio. But yeah, what happened was, we had a big tower next to the building, a 1,200-foot tower. The guy wires that came down one snap and about a thousand pounds of it hit the roof, and so that pushed the ceiling into the studio. So I thought I was going to be the first weather guy to go in the act, but luckily I got there. But yeah, that's I, you know you can't forget that. Absolutely and obviously um, that hurricane was
1: intense but not just on the shore but also inland. In places yeah, like Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, for our viewers that don't know why exactly it was that those strong winds made it so far into the planet.
5: I mean I think that atmospherically you had everything in place it took. You had obviously a hurricane, uh, category four hurricane off the coast of Charleston. You had a big area of high pressure off the coast of New England, area of low pressure in the Gulf of Mexico. Those steered that storm. Right, right across Charleston, right into the Midlands of South Carolina, making that turn more to the north, right over Charlotte, then right over Hickory, and then just on a beeline up the Ohio Valley. I mean, it was atmospherically things that you just don't see that often.
7: So that was a very unique story from Larry Sprinkle, and one that I can only imagine covering Hugo as you have partial uh, roof collapse of the studio. That just very unique story, James. Uh, you live in Charlotte, uh, the city of trees, and I'm sure the devastation
0: was real. Yeah, you know, and I, I wasn't living here at the time, Scotty, but that's my understanding of it. Having listening to Eric, talking to Larry, not only at the airport, but at work each day, just talking about the impact that this storm had uh, and the cleanup that followed, I'm still. Um, thinking about that image you had earlier in the show, Scotty, about the WSOC TV tower that just looked like it was bent over um, by a mon- monster force. Um, and I think that's uh, evident of the impact that this storm had on not only metal but trees um, across the whole region. Uh, let's actually bring in uh, Jared Smith as we bring in other mm-hmm. members of our panel here because, uh, Jared, you actually have some of your own stories. You guys had just moved out of the Charleston area, so you missed this by a hair, but still own some property in the area,
8: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, you, you got it, James. And, and, you know, it was interesting. So I was a wee little lad. Um, don't remember much of this, truth be told, but I was it was uh, 1988 when we moved to Charleston. We lived there a few months. Dad gets transferred. He gets transferred up to Pennsylvania uh, just before that summer starts. Um, and then we are sitting there around the t- television watching and fear, quite frankly, with Hurricane Hugo coming up, wondering what would be left of the house um it was there we got our introduction many many people got their introduction to john hope uh during hurricane hugo he had been on the weather channel for a few years but really that was kind of the coming out party for the weather channel just in general and uh so there we were you know watching that um and and i can trace a little bit of love for weather and meteorology back to that those events even though i wasn't there i can still take some of that and uh and and and, use that as kind of like man this is interesting
0: that's very interesting because if you watch our show a lot or you listen to our podcast often you'll know scotty always starts the interview with tell us about your weather journey and jared we've never mm-hmm. asked that question internally but i think you just answered yours
8: Yep, exactly and, and and that has that had a big part uh that was a big part of it um you know just uh, the exposure to that and and you know and understanding the human consequences of you know such a storm and then the photos came out the, the you know the like, like I said earlier, you know, the, the pictures of the boats that were piled up on 17 in McClellanville, just absolutely unreal to me. Um, the Ben Sawyer Bridge being twisted about, absolutely just unbelievable. Um, and then we moved back the summer afterward. and um, and, and it was crazy because, like, it, it looked very different from when we were there before so many fewer trees, like you could definitely tell that something had happened. You know, it it took quite a while uh, for everything to really come back uh, from that. So yeah, James, I'll tell you, I mean, it was a, you know, uh, the, the one thing that stands out the most to me, and 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 this is interesting. It's a, a cultural observation. There were so many people. I went. I remember going back to school. And there were so many kids who went back to school wearing "I survived Hurricane Hugo" T-shirts, and you saw those for several years afterward. Um, it was a, it was a it was a big deal for people. Um, it really left an imprint, and uh, you know, and it continues. It endures. The people who were there for Hugo, you're going to see them act very differently from the people who weren't. Uh, when it comes to some of these evacuations that we've had recently.
0: Absolutely, and on that point, I want to pop up this map uh, that the National Weather Service shared in time for the 25th anniversary. I say that because the map only goes through 2014, so it doesn't include Florence. But highlighted in red, echoing Jared's point, uh, was a social survey that was done Asking the question, what's the worst hurricane anyone in your town remembers? And all the way from the South Carolina coast through parts of central and western North Carolina, as far north as virtually the border with Pennsylvania, the answer for folks was 1989's Hugo. Mm-hmm. That area includes Scotty Powell. Scotty, you grew up, continued to live in the foothills. And certainly that's a story, almost a legend of sorts that I'm sure you grew up with and that those stories still stick with you.
7: Yeah, I I wasn't born, so I I don't remember any firsthand experience, but um, any storm that that moves through the area, whether it be honestly tornadoes or severe storms or even uh, landfalling tropical systems, Hugo's name always comes up. And so Hugo was the benchmark storm uh, for Western North Carolina. And the unique thing about Hugo was just the forward speed. Normally when we see hurricanes or tropical systems make uh, landfall, uh, they kind of slow down as, as they they interact with the friction of the coast. And that, that didn't happen with Hugo. It was forward speed ahead. <laughs> uh, excuse that little pun, but it zoomed through Columbia, Charlotte, and even up here into the foothills. We had a, a wind gust of um, 80 miles an hour in the Hickory area, which is about 10 10, 15 miles from where I live. And so uh, Hugo was known for the wind up here and, and just trees and just lots of trees knocked down. And and so I, I remember hearing stories of power being out for, for a week or two and just uh, it, it was pretty warm after Hugo as well. So not only did you have a loss of power, but you also still had some some warm temperatures to deal with. So uh, normally um, with tropical systems, we worry about the flood threat here in western North Carolina. The rain threat, I think maybe we saw two, three inches, and, and that's just because of the forward speed uh, of the storm. But definitely, Hugo, a benchmark storm here. Uh, everybody still refers to Hugo as being uh, what they remember uh, whenever you ask about weather. That, that's what people bring up here in western North Carolina and just the, the sheer uh, destruction that it caused um hundreds of miles inland we're about 250 miles from from myrtle beach um and just the 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 destruction that it that it caused well inland and will always be uh remembered here and uh you know hugo will always be that benchmark storm uh not only for the charleston area where jared's at but also here in western north carolina
0: thanks so much more of our hurricane hugo 30th anniversary special coming up after this break Let's now hear your stories. Let's bring in Tim Pounds. He has a look at listener stories that you all submitted to us here at
6: the Carolina Weather. Thank you, guys. And now we want to take a moment to listen to your stories. Here are a few experiences shared with us by our listeners.
12: I'm Jamie Franklin, and I survived Hugo. My family waited too long to evacuate, so we ended up in Florence, South Carolina, as Hugo literally ran us over on its trek toward, uh, through South Carolina toward North Carolina. The wind picked up and the lights flickered like like a thousand freight trains headed at you at once. The aftermath was just horrific, like a bomb had been dropped. Uh, trees down everywhere. Roads were impassable. Homes damaged. The electricity was out in my area for 13 days. All we heard at, uh, during the day was chainsaws and generators at night for those lucky enough to have them. It was scary but we were resilient and we made it through. I'll never forget it, 30 years has gone by so fast.
9: Hey, I'm Gene, I'm from northwestern Burke County in the Fish Hatchery Road area and I remember Hurricane Hugo very well. I remember the night before sitting at the Red Lobster in Hickory telling my wife, no, don't worry, a hurricane's not gonna hit Hickory or Morganton. But the next day uh, we were made believers of that. And I can remember being at work at the fish hatchery and standing outside and feeling rain, wind-blown rain coming through the zipper of my state-issued rain jacket.
6: And there's still time to send us your stories. Send us your story in the comments section below this video, or click the link in the description to leave us a voice message.
0: Uh, Tim, that's absolutely right. And we would still love to hear folks. So even if you're listening to this podcast at a later time, just go ahead and scroll on down to that show description and look for that link to send us a voice message. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll certainly revisit more of those listener stories. All right. We told you earlier in the program, we were going to talk about one of the what if scenarios. What could have happened if Hurricane Hugo had come ashore to the south of Charleston instead of to the north of Charleston? Let's bring in Evan Fisher with a look at that perspective. Evan?
1: Yeah, thanks, James. So, you know, as we saw 30 years ago, Hugo did make landfall on the northern end of Isle of the Palms, which is about five miles north of the city. But it would have been a totally different scenario for the downtown area if the storm had made landfall on Kiowa Island, which is about 10 miles south of Charleston Harbor. Now, that 15 to 20 miles may not sound like a big deal, but it would have made a huge difference for storm surge values in the downtown area, which is already so prone to flooding. Um, When the storm passed back in 89, downtown Charleston, the tide gauge recorded a a, a water level of just over 12 feet, um, which was a record, and that record still stands today, but that record could have been significantly higher um, if that storm had made landfall further south. And um, that's something that we hope we never have to see, because with all the old architecture in this area and the low-lying roads that flood on sunny days here in downtown Charleston, uh, it is a scary thought to think that that could happen one day.
0: Yeah, Evan, absolutely. And hopefully we don't ever see that scenario, but it's something to be very mindful of. Uh, Speaking about modern day storms, I was working with my dayside colleague Chris Mulcahy the other day, and we noticed something very interesting while looking at some of the facts and figures for Hurricane Umberto, which you'll recall was out in the Atlantic last week and eventually moved on towards Bermuda. Very little impact, luckily, on us here in the Carolinas this go around, but Umberto was actually the name that was placed onto our standardized list of hurricane names after hugo was retired so there are six rotating lists that we use Um, and so after hugo they retired the name so when this list came back around for use again they'd inserted umberto as the h male name to replace hugo which I thought was just very interesting and very interesting timing-wise that here around the 30th anniversary of Hugo, here was Umberto out in the Atlantic Ocean, the name that replaced the original storm. Other storms that were on that 1989 list that would eventually go on to be retired included Allison, which actually was the first tropical storm name to be retired. Allison never became a hurricane but caused such flooding and devastation in the Houston area that it was retired. The list also included 1995's opal so if you're not familiar names like hugo or katrina or even florence and michael from last season get retired if they have historical context and it prevents us from ever having a storm with that same name again on that note let's bring back in evan fisher evan i understand uh, for folks listening right now who maybe want to prepare for potentially the next storm here in the carolinas we've got some information for them
1: yeah, so we actually got the chance to talk with Leslie Henderson from the Federal Alliance of Safe Homes back in May at a Hurricane Hunters event. She gave us some really good information on how to be prepared uh, if you live in an area along the coast where hurricanes may threaten. The,
10: the, the starting point for all good building performance and the predictor performance is building codes. And they are different all over the country. So because of that, we're trying to bring more transparency to the building code issue by providing information. We've just now, for hurricane season this year, launched, for the first time ever, a consumer-facing web portal where you can go in and look up your address and see what kind of building code is adopted where you live. It's a huge undertaking. It'll be a multi-year project. So we're starting with residential codes and we're starting with current codes. And instead of giving you a lot of technical gobbledygook as a family, you don't want that. We'll give you a red, yellow, green analysis says green because your community has a code adopted today. Yellow, they have a code adopted, but it might be out of date. And red is fire alarm. You have no building code adopted where you live. So you've got to do something differently to make sure. The, the campaign is called No Code, No Confidence. And then you come to inspect to look and see what you have. That's really the first thing that you need to do to understand how is my house going to be? in a fill-in-the-blank earthquake flood hurricane tornado
1: for people that realize that maybe their house isn't up to code what are their next steps
10: well the thing they need to do is get an inspection we actually have some diy inspections, so we can start off slowly asking some basic questions about things around the house that you can go and take pictures of and understand you know what you have and then our process and everything we have is a nonprofit; is free so you can call us and then if you get to that point where you want to have a home inspection, we can give your home inspector an addendum list to make sure he looks at the right or she looks at the right things. And then you just have to move through the process you know, and figure it out. But it's it's, it's something we want you to start thinking about now while the weather's good, because think of the decisions that key off of your building performance. Should I stay? Or should I go? Am I safe here? Are my kids safe here? What about your largest single investment, which is your home? Is it going to be around? Um, There's a whole host of things you have to do to prepare, but when it comes to the house, you have to get to know your house.
1: Yeah, that's great information from Leslie that we just heard. I mean, I have my hurricane safety kit ready for, you know, now that it's hurricane season, if another storm were to threaten, um, we're always prepared. Um, But anyone along any coastal area on the eastern uh, seaboard and even in the Gulf of Mexico needs to be prepared from the months of June through November. Um, So now I'm going to toss it back over to you, James.
0: Yeah, Evan, absolutely. And we want to take this opportunity as we look back at Hurricane Hugo to really prepare for the next big storm, because unfortunately, it's not a question of if the next big storm will come, but when. And as North Carolina and South Carolina reflect on two 500-year storms in the past two years alone, there are now calls for smarter ways for the federal infrastructure across the Carolina's to prepare to handle and to off-put the floodwaters that are caused by these tropical storms. Mary Sherman files this report.
3: Hurricane Florence flooded more than 1,200 roads in the state in 2018, all while repair work from 2016's damage to Hurricane Matthew was still underway in some spots. While coastal cities bear most of the brunt of storms, Wilmington Mayor Bill Sappho says more inland communities are facing destruction.
5: A lot of those people are throwing up their hands and saying, enough's enough, I'm moving to higher ground and saying, I'm not going to experience another flood, I've had enough.
3: Forbes-Topkins with the Pew Charitable Trusts Flood Prepared Communities Program contends communities need more resources to protect infrastructure.
4: At the federal level, there needs to be a greater investment and prioritization of pre-disaster mitigation and resilience to help these communities get ahead of the next storm.
3: More than three dozen city leaders from North Carolina recently sent a letter to the U.S. House Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure urging members to create a federal-aid highway pre-disaster mitigation program. A Pew poll found 77 percent of Americans support a requirement that federally funded infrastructure in flood-prone areas be constructed to better withstand the impacts of flooding. And Tompkins encourages congressional leaders to better account for future flood risk as they work to modernize the country's infrastructure
4: just to make sure that when we build something, we're doing it right the first time. Infrastructure is typically designed to last 40, 50, 60 plus years, so we need to account for risk throughout that design lifetime.
3: Sappho adds that flood mitigation plans also should include larger stormwater ponds, upsized pipe infrastructure, and updated and expanded flood risk maps. Sappho notes it only takes one to devastate a community.
5: Something is happening in the environment that is triggering these events to take place more frequently and the impact is much greater. And they seem to be much slower moving storms, much wetter storms, which carry a tremendous volume of water.
3: Data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration shows flood-related disasters have increased by tens of billions of dollars every decade since the 1980s. For Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. Support for this reporting was provided by the Pew Charitable Trusts.
0: Certainly a story we will continue to follow here on the Carolina Weather Group, where each week we follow weather-related news here in the Carolinas and talk to newsmakers. Uh, and so we hope you will join us back here this Wednesday night at 8.15 p.m. Eastern time for an all-new episode of the Carolina Weather Group. We appreciate you tuning in on this special Sunday evening as we take a look back at the 30th anniversary of the landfall of Hurricane Hugo here in the Carolinas. If you have a story that you want to share and you haven't done so already, we invite you to share it right now in the comments of this video. Or if you're listening on the podcast feed, check out the show description. There's a link in there for you to record a voice memo. And we'll be revisiting all of those coming up real soon. So don't feel like you've missed out. Uh, we still want to hear from you. And so we hope that you'll take the time uh, to send those to us here at the Carolina Weather Group. On behalf of the entire panel, I'm James Briarton in Charlotte. Thanks again for listening. Stay subscribed. And we'll see you back here Wednesday night for an all-new edition the Carolina weather.